0: Welcome to the Boys in Blue Podcast, the podcast that's all about cops. I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. You have tuned in, undoubtedly, to the most informational law enforcement podcast out there today day because we'll talk to real cops, some active, some retired, and we'll get the inside story on law enforcement. Welcome once again to the Boys in Blue podcast. I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. Once again, I'm seated behind the stainless steel titanium microphone here in the Boys in Blue podcast studios in Mesa, Arizona. And today, I'm another first for the Boys in Blue podcast for the simple fact that I have a return guest. A lot of the guests that have come on the podcast have committed to a part two because their experience and uh, the years they spent in law enforcement are so extensive that there's no way that uh, we just barely scratch the surface when we talk to them. And so I usually ask them to come back and uh, at another time. Well, today we have Ernest Torillo. He was the regional operations director for the Department of Corrections in Arizona. Uh, He held that position for nine years. He started his uh, corrections employment right out of the Marine Corps in New Mexico, the state of New Mexico, worked in the prison system there for three years, then transferred to Arizona and i encourage you to go back and listen to part 1 it's fascinating you know he came up through the ranks he started as uh entry level and he worked his way up to sergeant lieutenant captain and to his final destination there is the regional operations director for the whole state of arizona's corrections department so today i want to welcome ernie trillo ernie welcome back thank you bill good to have you and one of the reasons I wanted to get you back on almost immediately was, first of all, most of the podcasts are to do with street cops in that. And uh, after our last podcast, I talked to you off the air and some of the fascinating things you <laughs> told me about that happened. Uh, I thought, holy smokes, it's just like being a street cop, except you're inside a city of inmates. And I thought about um the first podcast we went over the logistics of uh, your background there yeah. is uh from your marine experience uh you trained uh drill sergeants when they incorporated the shock incarceration boot camp for young inmates, and you yeah. trained the actual drill sergeants for that and uh we talked about, oh, there's 42,000 inmates in the state of Arizona. That's a lot of people. Uh, Department of Corrections has 9,000
1: employees
0: and 10 state-operated complexes. I mean, that's a complex. There's a whole bunch of people in each one of those. And I know you spent time at Florence out there. And uh, the bulk of your experience, of course, was on high-security inmates, death row, and uh, those sort of things, all the way up through your administration career. So, but that being said, that was just a quick review. We just kind of went over logistics and uh, some of the aspects of working with inmates um, and what that, the whole structure is. But today, I thought I we'd just get into some of the assignments you had. Now, you were a SWAT it's, a lot of people don't know that the prison has a SWAT team, actual SWAT team. You were sniper. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. How does that involve? How many? What's your training? How many guys are on it? What's your duties?
1: So each each prison complex has a tactical unit. Uh, in, in the police world, it's known as SWAT. Uh, the department had corrections calls it the tactical support unit. Um, and it's comprised of roughly 30 members on the team and uh, they have officers who specialize in uh, for example as designated snipers uh breachers a lot of the similar configurations that uh that a urban swat team would have however they focus more in their training on crowd control, putting down disturbances, riots. Uh, they also have training in uh, in uh, responding to escapes and escape attempts. Uh, so there's guys there that have dual purpose, if you will, with uh, tracking capabilities, with uh, patrol capabilities, different things like that. Um, I was fortunate that, you know, I, I started... Um, as what they would call a ground founder. Um, I was a squad member and uh, we typically, our equipment consisted of uh, back in those days was a 36 inch uh, baton. You were given a shotgun, depending on, on the assignment, what was needed, if you were gonna um, use, more firearms in the situation, you'd have a shotgun or a uh, 37 millimeter gas gun. Um, obviously, your own personal protective gear, as far as gas masks, uh, you know, elbow, knee pads, helmets, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then of course protective vests, more geared towards uh, stab and cut prevention than the ballistic aspect of it. Well, wow. and the the teams train regularly the the training is uh standardized the um uh, you know there's a number of guys that have and i was fortunate to get to go to a number of different tactical schools and in fact i graduated the uh nasa pd uh swat academy way back in the day uh-huh. Uh-huh. that's a that's, that's a fine organization there's those uh their tactical operators are high speed
0: um, well, You know, we had Sergeant uh, Gribble on the podcast. He's a sergeant with SWATS. Mm -hmm. You ever get a chance to listen to that one? He's, yeah, we're in good hands.
1: (laughs) Yeah, very good hands. Those guys are are very good, and uh, we've worked on a few things with them uh, several years ago. But um, so each prison complex has a team that can respond quickly to problems at their particular prison. And then the department also is able to. Deploy from one place to another to augment, depending on the severity of the problem. Oh, yeah. And send teams from one area to another to, to back up that team. Um, it, it works quite well, actually. And, you know, based on the regions, you can get a team from one area. Let's say uh, you've got something going on at the Safford prison. Uh, quickly, you can get teams from Tucson and Douglas to that problem. And all of a sudden now you've got close to a hundred operators. Oh,
0: yeah. Mm. So what would be a typical situation where you would be called in? Well, I'll
1: tell you, we had a situation one time. I was actually working in Florence, um, but there's a prison that the department has out um, at the base of Mount Graham called Fort Grant. Fort Grant used to be an army fort that uh, the U.S. Army used when they were chasing uh, Geronimo and uh, and uh, other, the Apache tribes that were out at that time causing problems. Uh, it got turned over to the state of Arizona and became a, the, uh, the school for boys or wayward youth. It was a juvenile institution for a long time, and then in the 1970s turned over to the Department of Corrections to incarcerate adults. Hmm. That hmm. place is is set up. It's it's not set up as a typical prison with cell blocks and you know hard cells and things like that. Instead, it's got uh, big dormitories for people to reside in, and then a bunch of houses. Literal, it's like a like a full neighborhood of houses where the staff housing used to be at one time. And it huh. got converted into inmate housing. So you, when you walk into Fort Grant, you're kind of looking at a little college campus, uh, little neighborhood. Uh, it's a minimum custody prison. And what we found over the years is some of the worst problems when it came to disturbances or riots was in, in low custody because the inmates have much more freedom of movement. They're oh, not just yeah. confined into hard cells to lock them in. I so see. they can, they can create some serious problems. Anyways, uh, many years ago they had, uh, some racial problems that broke out into a racial riot and inmates being opportunists, they began to destroy parts of the facility and set fires and, uh, you know, cause as much damage as they could. Um, so the tactical unit got deployed um imagine now having a, a, as a SWAT operator in a urban setting having to go in and try to reclaim an entire neighborhood all at one time <laughs> practically it's a, a oh nightmare. Uh, house to house um, yeah yeah it's it's a, it's literally house to house and uh you know fort grant houses its capacity is almost 900 oh so, smokes Mm-hmm. A lot, lot of lot of people on the ground. Um they it took a while, several hours to get that place back and what was interesting about it, um the operations office that housed you know, that was the main office for the operations of the unit, uh the inmates were able to get in there and they set fire to that and, and burned that thing down. And I recall being deployed out there by our warden and we Literally, we're firing munitions, uh, you know, stun grenades, gas, uh, rubber bullets from our shotguns, uh, bird shot, anything that would keep these guys down and allow us to advance and start regaining um, some of that territory back and getting some control and getting these guys uh, secured. What struck me was that, it, it, you know, there's rocks everywhere and, you know, if we can move something, you can make a weapon out of it. Oh, man. So yeah. We, they were hurling things at us and we're firing back at them and uh at one point we expended all our ammunition and uh, we were just coming down to the end of it and we had to call out to uh to Florence for them to send more munitions to us to keep us in the fight. Jeez. Um, and finally, you know, we we were able to exert enough firepower and I, I think quite frankly those guys got tired and uh we were able to start advancing on them in um uh, small formations if you will basically we were just sending squads to each uh sector as we set up our tactical plan and uh getting guys on the ground getting flex cuffs on them uh getting them searched for weapons and then finally we're able to have all 900 laid out on an on a, on <laughs> athletic field, like cord work. Uh, oh, I'll well, I'll tell you, the uh, the experience was uh, was something that stayed with me forever, that, you know, no matter how good a plan is, after the first round is fired, you got to go back and reset it because it, it never works out the way you intended.
0: Isn't that something? Wow. Well, I yeah. guess... Just from my vantage point here, safe in this podcast studio, <laughs> I would say you'd have like two or three plans in case something went yeah. anywhere. Yeah, yeah you have it. to have
1: redundancies built in, uh, you, you know, plan A, plan B, uh, plan C, you know, what if, you you play the what if game a lot.
0: Oh, man.
1: So was there any
0: situation there where lethal force was justified? I'm thinking... Well, I'm sitting there. I often wondered how these guys got the patience of Job to let some guy throw a boulder at their head. I mean, <laughs> um, I'm thinking the last. Self-discipline. Oh, I'm thinking the last noise you're going to hear is, pal, is a loud bang, you know? <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, fortunately, uh, they were not in a situation where any hostages were taken. Uh, we could not tell in the early parts of it, you know. If there were any serious assaults, fortunately nobody died. Uh, mm, mm. So, so no, I've you know, never I'm assuming,
0: did encounter a lethal force situation. Okay, now I'm assuming not all 900 are involved or are they? I mean, you don't know who's who to be honest with you, but uh, I'm assuming there's a the instigating band of people that are is this one of those situations Ernie where if you don't participate, you'll pay for it later or something.
1: Typically. Yes. So you, you try to, you see inmates running around acting like as if they're acting out, but really they're just trying to be seen that they're doing something. Uh-huh. um, Uh-huh. So that they don't face those repercussions later, but this was mm-hmm. one of those situations where the majority of that population was involved in one form or another. <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah, they, uh, they, they they caused a lot of damage. Oh, it's the investigation afterwards that really helps you determine, you know, root causes. It helps you determine your main instigators, things like that. You know, we had to send several to the hospital via ambulance due to their injuries, either because they had been shot with uh, some munition or another, or they were fighting or had been assaulted. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. It's it's uh, it's quite chaotic for for some time.
0: Pretty tense there. Yeah. Now I'm thinking the good news is you do have a perimeter
1: set up. Is that correct? Yes, there's for a the most part. Perimeter.
0: Yeah. yeah
1: there's so fence perimeters, and you, your first responsibility is to fortify the perimeter, keep yeah, them contained. So,
0: yeah. 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 Well.
1: Well, and now, a lot of times, local law enforcement will come in, they'll respond, and they'll set up on the perimeters and uh, provide that, that force that you need out there.
0: Well, I know uh, we haven't, fortunately, I don't remember too many big-time riots. I know they had some there, oh, twenty 20 years ago that were just ugly as can be. But now, um, when you say, for the state of Arizona, they have a little different racial uh, complexity than say Chicago or back East. Um, is it mostly Hispanic against white or how does that work?
1: Um, the dynamics seem to change with different generations of inmate coming in as far as age groups, uh-huh. but primarily, primarily when you run into problems, it's, the Hispanics and the African Americans having oh. problems with each other. Um, and normally it's due to drug trade. Huh.
0: Well I'm thinking in as far as Arizona isn't as high a population of African
1: Americans. Is that true? Uh, for some yeah that's true. It's it's not a high high population, but they they seem to be very active in uh and their criminal activity inside mm-hmm.
0: the yeah. prisons. Now, while I'm on that, is in
1: Washington,
0: they had biker gangs within the prison. Do they have those in Arizona
1: as well? No, not really. Um, the The Inspector General's office of the department has over, well over 50 sworn officers that function in investigative capacities. And they've been very good at taking the Caucasian population, their gang activities down, and you know, biker gangs are, there's, there, you get one or two Hell's Angels coming in, something like that, but nothing big. Oh, okay, okay. Nothing of noteworthiness.
0: Okay, now when we were off the air, you were telling me about an escape attempt out there in Florence that I'd read about a little bit, but this was a female that was trying to break out, was it her husband or boyfriend she was trying to break out of Florence?
1: It was her husband, a lady by the name of Rebecca Thornton uh, was married to a guy on death row named Floyd Thornton. And this would have been in 19, I wanna say 1996, early 97. At that time, the the director of the department, Terry Stewart, uh, issued a policy that uh, even inmates on death row were to work at hard labor. So we established a chain game of death row inmates to work out uh, in the fields right outside the perimeter, right outside the walls of the central unit. And the way they would be uh, taken out is they had leather ankle cuffs uh, with with chains that were secured and locked onto their ankles. And then they'd uh, take them out, take their waste restraints off, give them hoes uh, hose and shovels and things like that, and have them till the crops. They were supervised by uh, one officer on the ground that uh, kind of coordinated the work and then armed officers on horseback. Uh, Floyd Thornton, you know, these guys, uh, he, he was a serious bad guy. There, there was nothing, nothing innocent about him as far as uh, being on death row. That's where he belonged. Um, married to a girl named Rebecca Thornton, who he hatched an escape attempt, an escape plan with. Uh, he was able to hide with some other guys, uh, razor blades way up in their cheeks, where it would very be very difficult for an officer searching them to to find them. They went out, and when they sat down during a break, they took those razor blades out and cut through the uh, the leather ankle restraints really? uh, that they had on. Them. Yeah, to free themselves. Now, these razor, t- these razor blades—these
0: razor blades—are they? Uh, did they were issued for them to shave with? Is that the story? Yeah, these were just
1: yeah. They break up their shaving razor and uh-huh. take the blade. Oh, okay, okay, and yeah. All right, continue. <laughs> yeah. So he had set up this escape plot with her, where uh she was to show up uh, at a certain time of the morning when they typically got their breakfast. Um, these guys would rush the officer that was serving the breakfast at the pickup truck, steal his keys, and run the pickup truck through the fence while she was pr- providing cover fire. Uh, she'd, be, she'd, be, turned, she'd be outside the fence shooting? She'd be outside the fence shooting at the officers so that these guys could make their escape attempt. It wasn't uh-huh. a great plot. Uh, <laughs> but unfortunately, right at that, you know in that spot where they were working, uh, immediately across the street was a mobile home park. Uh, the time of the day, kids were getting ready to go to school and get, get on the buses to go to school. Um, there's a, uh, motel immediately across the street, uh, west of it, uh, There's a lot of activity in the area. So she was supposed to show up, um, arms to the teeth. And then she was, uh, she showed up late. However, and, uh, these guys at the, at the appointed time cut through their restraints, they attacked the officer and she wouldn't marry it. Oh boy. And she she showed up late and when she showed up, there was already melee on the ground and she started firing at these officers with an AK-47, fully automatic AK-47. Thornton saw that this thing's going badly real fast because the officers on horseback Uh, reacted well and were able to get these guys on the ground quickly and controlled. He went running towards the fence and he had set up a suicide pact with her that if he wasn't going to make it then she needed to shoot him and he was actually hollering at her, shoot me, shoot me and uh, she had a uh, forty-one caliber revolver that she fired through the fence and shot him, killing him. Um, (laughs) One of the Um officers was able to dismount his horse and he got, he was uh, armed with a uh, double-op buck shotgun, full gauge shotgun, and he fired at her and shot her, killing her. Wow. Wow. Yeah, these officers, uh, I was the administrator of the cell block that um, these inmates were, hu- this death row inmates were housed at and uh, we used to stand down that crew once a week, and we'd take the officers out with their horses, all the equipment, and they would train just for these type of situations. And for that training, uh, these guys reacted well and uh, prevented something really bad from happening because nobody, none of the public was hurt. None of the officers were injured. Uh, they got mucked up a little bit from getting booked off their horses when the rounds started going off. Um, but. In the end, the people that died were the were the people who were trying to make the escape and assist in the escape attempt.
0: Well, I tell you you know uh that's kind of surprising when you say uh I would think that the horses would be trained to perform under gunfire mm-hmm. is that normal or is that just uh yeah they were they were exposed
1: to a lot of gunfire um uh, one one officer. Um, it, it was interesting because I I lived right by there, and as I was walking out of my house to get in my car to go to the office, uh, I heard the sound of the automatic gunfire going off. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, like, oh uh, no, this is not this is not good. <laughs> so I went to that area, and by that time they had uh, they had gotten it res- not resolved but under control. I spoke to one officer, he's, and he showed me. One round literally grazed the hindquarters of his horse, oh. that, and he says that horse pitched me for uh, you know, oh. a double backflip with a gainer as he threw me so high into the air. I see. Um, yeah, you don't. You know, other train those Yeah, they don't. They're not trying to get hit. <laughs> okay. What What about the but, other officer? Um, the other officer was able to keep control of his horse and. Um, he he got a foot stuck in the stirrup and fell off and had to try to get himself uh, unhooked from the stirrup so he could he could engage his weapon and then uh, when he did so he got off threw that uh, shotgun right over the saddle took aim and uh, took care of business and wow. stopped her from doing anything else wow. those guys were really really heroic uh, yeah I guess you Jeez. know like I said before you know when I told you in the first. Uh, Podcast. I was blessed to work with so many outstanding professional people. These uh, these officers were true heroes. Oh
0: man, yeah. And you know, at the same time, you got to keep your eye on all the other inmates that are. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) probably they probably hit the dirt fast. But I mean, still, who's involved? You don't know. You know, I
1: mean, golly, yeah. And there were a bunch of them that had cut their, uh, cut their uh, leather ankle restraints. So that wow. you know, they could be part of this attempt, fortunately, the officer at the truck was able to uh throw he threw his keys over the fence away so that they couldn't have access to the truck and uh he got his shotgun and was able to with one other officer get all those guys down on the ground and under control. Wow, wow,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: a lot well, tell me, Ernie, what are some
0: of the most creative uh, violations, whether it's escape attempts or drug distribution or escape plans—maybe you guys found out about—or I don't know—you don't hear too much about tunneling anymore. Maybe you do. I mean, Shawshank Resemption, isn't that how they got out through the sewer or something? Oh, that that,
1: that Shawshank Redemption thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had one time uh, an inmate by the name of Kenneth Ransom, who was working in the industrial yard. It's a big uh, industrial area where they do metal fabrication, woodworking, upholstery, a number of different things like that, um, and requires the use of forklifts. Um, This was back in the day where I guess they just didn't think that these guys would be thinking the way they did, but he, he actually, The wall is about at least 25 feet high. And he and and another inmate were operating a forklift. Well, nobody thought to block off how high the forks could go so that they could move equipment. And um, he was on a pallet. And the tower officer noticed that the forklift was getting really close to the wall. It turns out that uh, he took an opportunity, got on the pallet. The forklift operator elevated the force all the way and dropped him over the wall. Um, (laughs) He took off. He took off for a run. Fortunately, uh, the the tower officer who was witnessing that was able to fire some shots at him and got him on the ground relatively quick. So he didn't make it outside the prison perimeter per se, but he made it over the wall. Oh he died. Uh, so that uh that quickly stopped the the use of the forklift within it being able to articulate all the way up. Now it has locks and barriers that it can only go a few inches off the ground to move equipment around.
0: Kinda learn as you go there, uh, uh Yeah.
1: You know what's boy. interesting though is we had a we had a pair of brothers on death row. Uh, the Poland brothers, Patrick and Michael, and they had killed, uh, robbed an armored car and killed uh, the officers that were doing the uh, armored car escorts. And uh, Michael Poland had some health issues and he set up a very elaborate escape plan where he would be transported to a hospital. We used to use St. Mary's Hospital in Tucson. And he had a number of different people involved in diagramming the hospital where the beds were located. I mean, he spent a lot, a lot of time. He was a very smart guy. And um, what's interesting is they had never recovered the money that the Poland brothers stole. And we thought later that he was using some of that money or the promise of that money for people to try to get him out. Mm, sure. Uh, he had, he had, um, Helicopters set up to land right at the heliport. um, And detailed, detailed plans. Fortunately, uh, all it takes is one person. There's no such thing as a secret if more than one person knows, you know? Well,
0: that's the truth.
1: uh, We shared that with somebody else in the prison that was able to talk and start alerting people. So we monitored his mail, monitored his phone calls, monitored... And took a lot of video of the people who we saw around the hospitals that uh, started becoming just uh, routine. Every time he was at the hospital, you'd see somebody that looked familiar that was at the mm. hospital. Mm. And uh, we were able to actually uh, foil, that, foil that escape pod. Wow. Uh, but this was uh, probably the most creative and detailed plan that I had seen. He, you know, you think about the things that they show in the movies with all these uh, maps and uh, organizations and all that. This guy had all of that. Mm. Um, and eventually, eventually he, was, uh, he was executed. So he was be able to escape.
0: Huh. Oh, some of that greatest stuff. Now, did they have a helicopter attempt out there at Florence at one time or was that another prison I'm thinking of like a helicopter just kind of like landed
1: and grabbed a guy and took off. And then the- no, that, that, that didn't happen. There was, there was a uh, plots, if you will, we had a uh, cartel member that was actually incarcerated out in Florence, uh, a big, big time uh, drug dealer. And he had, put a big bounty out for a helicopter to come and get him and, and take him right out of the prison yard. But that never actually transpired.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Maybe that was it. Oh boy. Yeah. Well, you know, with these guys uh, like specialty cartel, they got the, the money uh, and the influence to make a lot of yeah. things happen inside there. I'll tell you now, one of the things that I always had a question about, mm-hmm. you know, you don't hear about it so much anymore. But it used to be these guys would uh, protest by going on a hunger strike. Mm-hmm. And I always thought to myself, "Did you ever were you ever involved in any of those, Ernie? Yeah, frequently. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm thinking to myself, just sitting here not knowing anything from the outside, totally removed. I'm <laughs> thinking, well, I guess, pal, when you get hungry, you'll eat. Meanwhile, we're going to give your bologna sandwich to this other guy if you don't want it. So, how does that work? How do they figure they're going to get anywhere by just saying, well, I'm not
1: going to eat? Well, okay. Well, it's, from my standpoint as a normally thinking person, it's kind of misguided because you're only hurting yourself. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, you know what I mean? But when they get people out in the community rallying behind them, then it's their own, you know, um, some of the guys have said, well, the only thing I can control is me. So that's my form of control because you have a responsibility for my health and safety. So, you know, we, we have procedures for dealing with hunger strikes. You know, uh, they, they, to be officially, if you will, by, po- by the policy on a hunger strike, they have to miss at least nine consecutive meals. And then uh, you begin monitoring uh, at a certain point. Water intake, uh, when they buy from the inmate commissary, uh, you limit what they can buy so that they're not buying goodies from, you know, the honey buns and different things like that while they're not eating the prison food. And then uh, eventually all the way, we've gone to court and gotten court orders for forced food. Huh. to keep them from, from committing because, you know, it can go bad. You know, you can go a long time without eating, but at a certain point, the organs begin to shut down. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, very detailed procedures for managing that, mm-hmm. you know, creatively. Because I spent a lot of time walking and talking with the inmates, so I had good relationships with many of them. And if a guy was on was saying he was on a hunger strike, I'd go and uh, throw a little bag of popcorn in the microwave and pop some popcorn and then walk up in front of him standing there eating that popcorn. <laughs> and oh, you know, the smell of freshly popped popcorn okay. gets anybody salivating. Sure, sure. I can't tell you how many times that some guys are thinking, can I have some of that popcorn? I'm hungry. Uh, well, and you, yeah. before you know it, you've resolved your hunger strike. Yeah. Uh,
0: well, I can, I can see, you know, as you explain it, it's just to bring attention any any way they could to their yeah. situation. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, and there's Er a a variety of grievances that they air as to why they're doing
0: it. Sure, sure. Well, Ernie, I wanted to bring you back on the podcast for the simple fact that I do honestly feel that um, corrections has been, oh, I don't know. You can tell by the the pay scale and all that that it's kind of taken – I haven't got as much attention and and appreciation for what they do. And for anybody that wanted to be in law enforcement, I mean, uh, when you start talking about the SWAT team and the snipers and horseback and all that kind of stuff, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities for people that are interested in that area of of law enforcement that uh, maybe they're not aware of. Um, So so I wanted to just bring you back on and hear some of those uh, incidents that the corrections officers get involved in. I mean, you just never know. and uh, They can be pretty exciting in itself. So I wanted to thank you for coming on again and uh, spending time to just You're give welcome. us a little, thank you, a little bit of your background. I mean, 37 years, you've seen all that stuff, seen the changes and the riots and the rubber bullets and horsebacks. And oh my. So anyway, listen, Ernie, I'm going to let you go now, but I sure appreciate you coming on the podcast. And uh you and your wife are good friends, so we'll be
1: seeing you down the road. Thank you. Hey, Bill, if I may, I just wanna make a quick shout out to Sure. Uh, uh, it, right now, uh, I think it's uh, coming upon uh healthcare workers uh recognition week. Uh, National Police Week's coming up soon, uh here in May. And uh National Correctional Officers Week is coming up here in early May as well. Mm. For all our first responders that are in the hospitals and the doctor's offices out on the streets and inside the prisons. I just want to thank them for all that they do because they're our true heroes. Boy, that's the truth. Yeah, that's the truth.
0: Well, thank you for doing that, Ernie. Thank you, sir. Well, thank listen, you. we'll let you go and we'll be talking to you down the road, Ernie. Take care, Bill. All right, you too. So that concludes our uh, podcast today with Ernie Torillo. Now, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to part one if you're in the audience. And it's fascinating to see the, the other side of law enforcement we don't, we don't hear a lot about, we see it on the news once in a while. But it can be dangerous work and it can be very rewarding, as you, and as you can see with uh, Ernie Torillo there. Worked his way from the Guard all the way up to Regional Operations Director for the whole Department of Corrections. So there's opportunities there. But... We just want to thank those guys, and, and like Ernie said, a shout-out to the our true heroes out there that are exposing themselves not only to danger, but uh, not only from uh, crime itself, but also the viruses and all that going on, so we thank you. So that concludes our podcast today. Thanks for listening. Share it with somebody, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Boys in Blue podcast. Again, I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. Boys in Blue comes out every other week. Subscribe to the Boys in Blue wherever you get your podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you think.